So let's, let's draw something right off the bat. Just, we'll draw a little map here. So let's say that this is the Mediterranean coastline here. And it goes down and then it sweeps over. And this is the land of Israel. See, let's say this is the mountain where Jerusalem is. And then over here is the Nile River. You love this, don't you, Tirza? Yeah. And then, so here, anyway, the people of Israel went down to Egypt. So they're all somewhere down here now, right? Um, I don't know which side of the Nile they were on. Does anybody know? We'll put them over here. Okay. Okay, so that's where the people of Israel are. And it says that, it says that a new king arose who didn't know Joseph. And uh, history suggests that that was actually a new dynasty of pharaoh kings that rose up. And they didn't have the same relationship with the, the people of Israel that the previous dynasty had. Um, history would maybe suggest it was the Hyksos or some dynasty like that. Anyway, so this new pharaoh was like, these people outnumber us, or they're, they're, they, uh, they're pretty sizable in terms of population. And they have, the Hebrew word there is, the word is like atzum. Everybody say atzum. It's actually the word for, for like fangs and claws. Like this nation has fangs and claws to it. It's also the word for your bones. Like this, this, this nation has an internal structure. Um, actually in modern Hebrew, that's the root for the word for independent. Like Independence Day in Hebrew is called Yom Ha'atzma'ut. Can you hear the atzam root in there? So Independence Day in, in, in Israel is Yom Ha'atzma'ut. And this is the same word for what it says that Pharaoh saw that Israel was. So this was a nation with, with a solid infrastructure uh, and with... with um, with teeth and claws. Kind of like it could defend itself, essentially. And uh, this pharaoh was kind of freaked out about that. Um, so maybe we'll try to draw a freaked out pharaoh. Let's see. Uh... Hi, Terza. Okay, how, how do we draw like the cool like, kind of towels they wore on their heads? Something like that. He, was, he had some insecurity issues. There you are. Okay, so he was afraid that they were going to, if there was a war, maybe let's say if the, maybe the new dynasty tried to come back or something, that um, the people of Israel would side with the new dynasty and then they would um, beat this dynasty and go back to Israel. They would make Aliyah. That was what he was afraid of. So I want to look at one specific verse in this parsha with you and then we're going to build on a concept. Uh, this isn't something that affects you as an individual so much directly. This is going to be more a talk about us as a community and us as a broader movement. But here's the thing. If you are part of a community or a movement, then where your community goes is where you go. So even though maybe this isn't for you as an individual, if you're part of a community, then this is totally for you. And we are all part of the community of Yeshua's disciples. So this is for us. So uh, let's look at the book of Shemot, or Exodus chapter 1, verse 7. And this is what it says. The sons of Israel were, let's count them on our fingers, there are four descriptors here, fruitful, and increased greatly, and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the end result was the land was filled with them the country was full of these guys that was, that was the analysis and this new dynasty of pharaohs could, 
could see this quite clearly. So I want to look at those four words with you quickly, and we'll kind of get a feel for what was going on. The first word there is fruitful. That's the Hebrew idiom for like being productive or reproductive or fertile. So the people of Israel were reproducing themselves at a rapid rate. They were a fertile people. Then it says they increased greatly. I love this Hebrew word. It's the word sharats. Everybody say sharats. It's usually the word for what bugs do. Like if you ever just sit there on a nice hot sunny day and you watch an anthill, the ants are sharatsing. Um, if you ever like sit on a dock, looking into the water, watching like teeming minnows all over the place, you can never count them all. You never know where they come from, where they're going necessarily. That's the word sharats in Hebrew. Like where it says in Genesis 1 that the, the, the bugs were swarming and the fish were teeming in the ocean, that's that word. So the people of Israel, they were swarming like insects. They were teeming like fish in the ocean in the land of Egypt. Sharats in, in English, um, S-H-A-R-T-Z. And if you're from the States, then you would spell it T-Z. Uh, S-H-A-R-A-T-Z, yeah, right on. If it, It's easier in Hebrew, it's just three letters, Sheen, Resh, and Saudi. Yeah. Okay, the third one says they were multiplying. And uh, this is really basic math. Anyone can get this, whether you're homeschooled or public schooled, you can get this. Addition is when you take numbers and you put them together, and then the sum total is the two numbers, right? And multiplication is something different. That's where you take the numbers and they multiply, and the sum total is considerably larger, right? It doesn't say the people of Israel were adding to their number. It says they were multiplying to their number. Like having twins or triplets, maybe. But actually, um, here, here, here's an example. Remember God said to Eve to be fruitful and multiply? Now, was God suggesting that Eve have six billion babies? That would be addition, right? If Eve had six billion babies, she just started popping out the babies, that would be addition. But multiplication is a little bit different. Let's, let's draw a little picture of multiplication. So let's say, um, let's say here's Eve... And if she, okay, the, here are her little babies here. All right. So let's say that she has three little babies. This is addition, right? Multiplication is when those little babies grow up and they start having little babies. No, 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 no. So we'll say each of them has three little babies, and uh, you get the picture, right? That that is multiplication. So it's saying there that the people of Israel they weren't just adding; they were multiplying and that actually happens at the third generation so you have the first generation one person second generation that's addition third generation is where you begin to multiply so it says that the people of israel when they start hitting the third and fourth generation like this thing was growing exponentially the israel enterprise and then it says the result of all this stuff was the land or the country was being filled up by these guys and actually, it kind of like this is kind of the main point of Exodus 1. It keeps saying it over and over again. I'll give you another couple examples, and then we'll look at some parallels with the first two human beings on planet Earth and the early Yeshua movement, like 2,000 years ago. Exodus chapter 1, verse 10, if you want to look at it with me. This, is, um, this was the strategy of the new dynasty of pharaohs. Come, let's deal wisely with them, or else they will what? Multiply. And in the event of war, they'll also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. That, that depart word there is to go up, right? To make Aliyah. Exodus chapter 1, verse 12. Two more verses down, it says, The more they afflicted them, the more they what? Multiplied. 
multiplied. And the more they what? Spread out, expanded, that's right. So that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. And then finally, Exodus 1 verse 20 says, So God was good to the midwives, and the people what? Exodus 1.20, the people multiplied. It says it again, right? It just keeps saying it over and over again because this is one of the main points of this chapter. And they became very mighty. And uh, do you remember what I told you that Hebrew word for mighty is? It's spelled in, in Hebrew, it's spelled ein, tzadi, mem, atzam, and there it's atzum, and it means to have teeth and claws and to have like bones. So this was a solid people. They had infrastructure. Uh, they were capable of defending themselves and acting independently. They were like autonomously governed. It has all of those ideas. So that's your analysis of the people of Israel. Um, do you know what the very first mitzvah command in all of the scriptures is? That's right. It's kind of funny because people sometimes would be like, oh, that old law, it's bad. You know, it's a big burden and it's just going to make you not happy. But actually, the very first command in the law is to make babies. And most people are really happy to make babies. A lot of kids, all they want to do is get married and make babies. So, I mean, there's an example of a commandment that actually most people really enjoy fulfilling. Even highly non-religious people really enjoy obeying God's command when it comes to the very first one in the Bible. Right? So, the very first command is to uh, be fruitful, to reproduce, and to fill the earth. And it's pretty cool because humanity's done a pretty good job of that one, actually. Even in a non-religious state. Even disobedient people. They've done pretty good at increasing world population and expanding. And you'll find people pretty much anywhere you go. I mean, even in Antarctica, you'll find the occasional person. I just, uh, I just read on the news recently about a lady who was, like, traversing Antarctica by herself. I can't remember. I think on, on skis. That's it, on cross-country skis. Yeah, so I mean, you even go to Antarctica and you'll find a couple of people who are fulfilling this commandment to, uh, to get out there to the whole world. So um, I mentioned that like, this is a mitzvah, a commandment that everybody loves to obey. Isn't that interesting? Why do people reproduce? Why do people obey this command of God? Is it because they're like, well, I read it in the Bible and God says to be fruitful, so I guess they just have to get married even though doing God's commands is a real burden and we'll have to have some babies even though that sounds like legalism and it's a lot of work and trouble. No. Why do people get married and have babies? It's because it's like hardwired into our DNA. Like we are made to reproduce. The human, humanity is made to have babies. Like, and uh, you know, to the chagrin of people with an agenda to like depopulate the earth. Like, it's just not going to happen because this one is hardwired so deeply into our DNA. And as you can see, that was also the case with the people of Israel. There was something in their national DNA. There was something deep in their instinctual psyche that was just like, we are going to grow and we are going to reach that, like, that level of independence as a nation and uh, that kind of idea. Maybe it was like Israelite manifest destiny in some interesting sense of the word. Just kind of contemplating out loud there. Okay. So, here's the cool thing. We looked at, like, Adam and Eve and their DNA. We looked at the people of Israel and their DNA. When you look at the early Yeshua movement, you see the exact same thing. Um, Paul said that Yeshua is like the second Adam, right? So, like, Adam and Eve, let's draw Adam and Eve. Um, they, back in the park, um, we'll draw a big bush for them to stand behind because that's the way you always draw Adam and Eve. And um, there's Adam. And there's Eve. 
It's a really good thing that there were big bushes in the park where they lived too, or children's storybook artists would be in a lot of trouble. So there they are. They're really happy in the garden. And um, they have this thing that God said, like, reproduce yourselves and fill the earth. And he also said to rule. He said to rule. That was in their DNA. That is in the psyche of humankind. Yeshua, Paul says, is the second Adam. So the dynamics that were happening with the first, Adam and Eve, his bride Eve, are going to be happening with Yeshua, the second Adam, and us, Yeshua's bride. So, where God said to Adam and Eve, do these things, guess what Yeshua said to us, his bride? He said, go. He said, reproduce yourselves as, as disciples. Uh, fill the earth, go out into all the nations, preach to all creation, and rule. Bring the kingdom of God. Drive out demons. Where there are power centers that are not the kingdom of God, take those out and bring the rule of God. It's so cool because it's like an exact parallel. So what that means is the early Yeshua movement had this in their DNA. They had this in their DNA to go into the world, to make disciples, to take the place for God's kingdom. And when you read about the early Yeshua movement, they totally did that. I mean, around the year 100, historians would say there were probably uh, maybe about 50,000 disciples of Yeshua tops. By the year 300, or slightly thereafter, when the Emperor Constantine came on the scene, it had spiked to millions, and historians would suggest at least one out of ten people in the entire Roman Empire were followers of Yeshua. They totally multiplied. And just like Pharaoh was freaked out about Israel, the Roman emperors were freaked out about the Yeshua people because they were multiplying like crazy because they, even though they honored the Roman government and they submitted to Caesar to the degree that Caesar's laws were uh, in harmony with the word of God, they also had a very high degree of autonomy. They had another king. They were following another king. And that freaked the Roman emperors out. And uh, then, you know, Constantine came along and everything kind of took a turn and that's another chapter of history. But you can totally see that there was that DNA in Yeshua's bride at the beginning to go, to reproduce herself, and to take the place for the kingdom of God. Now, when Constantine came on the scene, some stuff changed. And ever since then... Like, the approach of the body of Messiah has been kind of different towards this, and I would suggest that our DNA has gotten scrambled or blocked to a very high degree. And I want to look at five ways that our DNA has become scrambled or blocked in what Yeshua is doing today to correct that so that we can be like the early Yeshua movement again and have that same punch. I'm going to give you a couple of stats here. I've been reading a lot of books on like house church or organic slash simple church. Um, maybe you don't use the term church. Maybe you think more in terms of community. I'm like that too. But um, you know, the, 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 the facts and the statistics and a lot of the principles you can apply whether you're Christian or Messianic or whatever. So this will be very relevant for us. Um, there's a, a researcher, statistician in the Southern Baptist Convention named J.D. Payne. He recently was doing a survey of the house church movement because it's uh, something of a well-known fact right now in missiological circles that... House churches multiply really fast. People in small groups that do things a little less formally, they grow way faster than your average, uh, let's say, church of 100 or 200 people or even a megachurch. And so, you know, this is raising the eyebrows of a lot of, um, a lot of church planting types. So anyway, J.D. Payne, he did a survey for the Southern Baptist Convention 
Um, th- this was the state of the Southern Baptist Convention in 2003. And uh, this, will, this will give you a pretty good idea of any denomination in the evangelical Christian world. In 2003, 31.3% of Southern Baptist churches didn't baptize anybody. So 31.3%, not even one person came to faith. 38.5% of Southern Baptist churches baptized one person. Everybody say one person. Okay, so almost 32% baptized nobody. A little over 38% baptized one person. That's over two-thirds of churches in the Southern Baptist Convention that had one person or nobody. That, that is a deplorable rate of growth. And I'm not picking on the, 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 the Southern Baptist Convention. And we're just using this as an example of the evangelical world, right? I mean, this is something that obviously Southern Baptist missiologists are also like really wrestling with, which is why some of them are looking at going to the house church model. Um, statistically, it takes 86 Southern Baptists to bring one person to faith annually. So you have 86 people, and one more person is going to come, going to, come to faith annually. Wow. All right. Um, Larry Crider and Floyd McClung have a book called Starting House Church. Um, in that book, they also list some statistics that in the United States, annually, 1,500 churches are started. And I mean, you know, like this is, this is talking about um, churches that, you know, officially incorporate and all that. So I, I definitely see the body massage as an organism, but this kind of gives us some feel anyway, right? 1,500 churches are started in the sense of incorporating, and guess how many closed down? 4,000. That's, that's called a death rate. 1,500 start, 4,000 close their doors. That means like a lot of churches are just getting old and they're dying and not as many are starting up. That's, that's just a, that, that's a, across the board in the States. Um, here's one more statistic for you from Tony and Felicity Dale's book, Small is Big. Okay, outside of the West, when you look at churches' budgets and how many people come to faith in proportion to churches' budgets, it takes 330,000 people to bring one, dollars, sorry, to bring one person to faith. So that's like church budgets, missions budgets, etc. So for every $330,000 poured into that system, one person comes to faith. Uh, if you were like, let's say you were a shareholder in the Kingdom Corporation, or if you were looking at those stats, you'd be like, this is junk, let's just scrap the whole thing. You know, um, in, the, in the States, and in Canada, this gets even better, in the West, it takes 1.5 million people, dollars, to bring one person to faith. Like if you look statistically at, let's, um, let's say some church here in Prince Albert, if you look at that church's annual budget, and you look at how many people come to faith in that church, that's roughly what you're going to get. Wow, eh? $1.5 million for one person to come to faith. So anyway, all that to say, like, we've come a long ways from the early Yeshua movement in the first couple of centuries. Something happened along the way that really scrambled our DNA, that stopped our, our, our natural growth impulses. So that today, like, we pour money into a system, and almost no one's coming to Yeshua, and uh, most of us don't even notice. We just think this is the norm. But this is totally not the norm. And I mean, these are, these are statistics relating to, you know, the, more the evangelical world. If you were to look at the Messianic Jewish world or more the Hebrew roots kind of world, I'd, I'd say we're probably doing even worse, quite frankly. Um, most Messianic Jewish congregations are not growing very much at all. 
or Hebrew roots groups. If they do, it's usually called transfer growth, right? It's not new growth. Believers just coming to faith in Yeshua. It's transfer growth where people, you know, they come from another church and they become part of a community. And that's great and all, but that's not our mission, right? So whether you're evangelical or a Messianic Jew or Hebrew roots or whatever you are, this should be highly unnerving because Yeshua told this story about this tree that a, that a farmer planted and he was a businessman, right? And so he watched the tree for three years and then the fourth year came along and this thing just wasn't producing fruit. And so he told his manager, just chop the thing down, it's not producing fruit. And the manager's like, give me, give me one more year with this thing and I'll, I'll fertilize it and I'll really pour into this tree and we'll see what we can do. And if it doesn't produce fruit, then you can chop it down. I mean, those are some scary words from the Master when you think about it. Like, Yeshua, He is such a loving friend. And He is such an accepting Savior. And I really value that. But there's also a side to Him that thinks really practically, like a businessman thinks, where He just looks at the bottom line, He looks at the results, and He says, man, something's wrong here. We've got to change something or this has to go. So like, you know, this is, this is something to be, uh, to be considering about, about our Savior. So I just want to look at five areas where our, our DNA has become scrambled. And, um, you know, as, as you know, like, I'm definitely in a major paradigm shift right now. I'm doing a lot of studying and homework. I'm going to be um, developing some talks, and we're going to talk through some things as a community. And we're going to be going through some restructuring and some overhauling in the next couple of months. And uh, we're just going to, the, the most important thing is we're going to say, Yeshua, what does your word say? Let's go with that. Where is your Holy Spirit leading us? We are going to have a consensus approach where we know very clearly this is where the Holy Spirit's leading us. And we're going to go there. But um, so, you know, in the meantime, my talks are going to be about some of these things that I'm learning and that I'm wrestling with. So, number one, why did Adam and Eve have a baby? Why did the early Yeshua movement reproduce themselves? Why does anybody do anything? It's because you want to, generally speaking. Generally, when you look at the direction a person's going in life, or you know, when they start a family and stuff, it's because they want to. So, generally, anything in our spiritual lives begins with desire. Your salvation began with God desiring you. Your discipleship growth is going to be a result of you desiring to follow Yeshua. So it's totally about th- this desire thing in, in God's heart and our hearts, right? That's always where it starts. And uh, if I were to look, let's say, at the evangelical world or the Hebrew roots world, groups like ours, quite frankly, I think quite often we just don't even realize that there's a problem. Uh, we don't really have a desire to grow exponentially. And I mean, and I'm saying this on a broader level, okay? I visited a lot of churches and messianic communities, so I'm not saying everybody in this room is like this. I'm saying this kind of a general thing. And I look at my life, and I can say that about myself. You know, it's kind of like, I, 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 um, I historically have had the approach like, you know, it would be nice if new people came, and I'd definitely be open to that, and I would even like it. But it's not my obsession, it's not something that I dream about. It's not something that I really pray regularly to God in a desperate way for. Like, my desire just isn't at that point, right? And Yeshua's really challenging that in my life right now. He's addressing that in my heart and um, maybe, maybe even in us as a community. So sometimes I think, you know, groups just don't care about reaching new people, about making new disciples. It's like, yeah, if it happens, that would be great, but we're really not going out of our way. It's not something like that we pray for every day, uh, that kind of thing. Um, which is actually kind of nice, because it's really simple, hey? 
like to let it, it starts with Yeshua's heart. Yeshua has this massive desire to see disciples come to him. And like as we connect with Yeshua, we're just gonna feel that. And it's gonna consume us if we let it. And that's an awesome thing. You know, um, something I've sometimes observed, like in Messianic communities, is uh, we kind of have this narrow view of mitzvot, commandments. So we will really key in on certain external mitzvot, like let's say honoring Shabbat, or wearing tzitzit, or um, you know, structuring our diets in certain healthy ways. And uh, these are things that God said, these are things that Yeshua did, and these are good things, right? But sometimes we forget about a ton of other mitzvot that Yeshua gave and that his apostles recorded. Like immersing people in his name, making new disciples, sharing the good news with people on a regular basis. Like those ones, I don't know, sometimes in messianic circles, those ones get no airtime, and we just hammer, hammer, hammer on this little group of external ones that most other people aren't doing. And that can, be, that can result in imbalance, that can result in arrogance, that can result in a lot of negative attitudes. So I, I, I really hope that we as a group will continue to be whole Bible believers. We read and we believe the whole Bible and we apply, and, and we do our best with the help of God to apply every command in the Bible to our lives because we love Yeshua because we're following him, all that stuff, right? So I actually encountered one Hebrew roots kind of group and they called themselves whole Bible Christians. And I really like that. I really like that, actually. You know, if you kind of label yourself Torah observant, you will have a tendency to really zero in just on a specific set of mitzvot in like Genesis through Deuteronomy. And you, ha- you may be in danger of forgetting a lot of really important stuff that Yeshua said in, in, um, in the apostolic writings. So that's something to think about. Um, this is actually kind of ironic. This is something I've been thinking about. Okay. Like, you know... In, um, in the Western world, there's kind of this tendency towards like maybe just having one or two children or having no children at all. And uh, you know that's something that, has, that is a result of a specific set of Western values, a certain way that people do life and that kind of thing. Um, you know, it's not exactly the way God like, designed us instinctually to want to be a dad or a mom and to have children and that kind of thing. But it's something out there. And often in the messianic world, you'll see bigger families. You'll see people, let's say, that avoid birth control altogether or believe that children are a blessing, so let's have as many as we can, that kind of thing. And that's great. But sometimes I've noticed that in messianic communities, we'll have big families and we'll really believe in having children in the natural but something scrambled something in our spiritual DNA and we don't have children in the spiritual. So we're emphasizing having big families in the natural, which is a good thing, but we forget the bigger thing of having a big family in the spiritual, seeing new believers born into our community, seeing new disciples brought in. And I think that might be an example of imbalance in the messianic movement sometimes. Sometimes I think that's an area where we emphasize something in the natural and we forget about something that's even more important uh, maybe not even more important, but that's equally important in the spiritual. So it's kind of ironic. Um, like sometimes, let's say you'll have a messianic community or whatever, and they'll be like, "Yeah, we just want to kind of have our holy huddle. We want to have a religious clique. It's just us for no more kind of approach." And there will always be reasons, you know. Well, you know, people out there in the world, they they're um, they're dangerous. Maybe they're dangerous, or maybe they'll. Maybe they believe something that we don't believe, or maybe they'll have some influence on our children that we don't want. So we better just kind of limit our community and just go underground, basically. That's sometimes the approach. And I think that's a really dangerous approach, and I think that's backwards, because when you have that approach, yes, you may be like ultra-sheltering your children and keeping them super safe, but you're also teaching them a disobedient lifestyle, which is equally, if not more, dangerous. 
Because our lifestyle as believers is to be like loving our neighbors, reaching out, having people over, sharing the good news, not just in some depersonalized tracts or through televangelism or all that stuff that we made up, sharing the good news with people that you have real friendships with. And that means getting involved in the lives of like people that are rough around the edges, people that don't always smell good. And you know what? Maybe, maybe there is a little bit of risk there for your family or your children. But maybe it's even more risky to disobey Yeshua's command and to just have your religious click. Because you're teaching your children to have a disobedient lifestyle. And they're going to grow up with their not like seeing any new believers come in, not seeing anyone baptized. They're not going to have any sense about mission. And from what I've observed in the evangelical world, kids like that usually grow up, grow up bored because there's nothing happening. There are no new people because... And like they will just walk off when they get older because it's boring, because nothing's happening, because people have no sense of mission. Uh, that was kind of how I felt by my mid-teens in, in evangelical church. I'll admit to you. And I, I want to change. I really want to change. You know, it's like you kind of hit this certain age and it's like in, in my church, it's boring, there's nothing happening, so I need to go look somewhere else for a mission. I need to go somewhere else for excitement. I need to walk away from my faith community if I'm going to find any adventure. Really. I mean, you, like, you look at what's happening in the religious world today, it's so is what's happening, eh? And I think that's sad because discipleship to Yeshua is the greatest adventure. Like following Him is exciting. There's massive risk involved. There is adrenaline if you're doing it right. And, uh, and there's a mission there. There's a reason to live. There's a cause to live and die for it. Unfortunately, I don't know, somewhere along the way we kind of lost it. And it's just we do the same thing and it's boring. So that's something to think about. Um, how could, how, what could we draw to picture that first, that first concept? Just desire and um, like anything that would squelch that desire or scramble our DNA um, kind of along those lines. Maybe let's just draw a person with a big heart because it starts with the heart. So there's somebody with a big heart and they're just thinking about it. And uh, when you really want something and you're thinking about it, hi, tears that you're talking about it too. So this person is like talking and praying about it a lot. And I want to be like her. Okay. So that's uh, number one. Um, number two, when you uh, look at Adam and Eve, Adam and Chava, they didn't like have to have any education about how to reproduce themselves. Like they didn't have to go to school and have classes about uh, procreation. Like it, it was an instinctual thing, right? They they made babies, and um, that happened in the right environment. That, that's the same case today. You get you get a guy and a gal together in marriage, and you put them in the same house, and the babies will come along. It happens, right? You have the right environment, and productivity is the result. Often, I think, maybe a reason that we don't see a lot of new disciples is today is because we don't create the right environment. We have, like, the wrong environment. So whereas, whether you're talking about children being born, or whether you're talking about new disciples coming along, in both cases, like, that's something that naturally happens. That is in our DNA. And if it doesn't happen, it's because we're in the wrong environment or because we're doing stuff in an unnatural way. So that would be, that would be the number two thing. Um, I'll, give you, I'll give you an example of this. Um, Genevieve and I are like the ultimate church hoppers. 
Because we, you know, we, we gather at synagogue on Saturdays and we're free Sundays and I really love the body of Christ and I, I like knowing what God's doing and not doing too sometimes. So we like to visit different churches on Sunday mornings. And it's funny, like, I haven't been to church in so long, and now I go to church almost every Sunday morning to a different one. And so we get to experience, like, the classic, oh, no, we're going to be late Sunday morning rush thing. It's like, wow, I think I can remember this from when I was little, but it's been a while. So anyway, it's, it's pretty fun. And, I mean, I like to go and just meet people and, you know, enjoy worshiping God. And, um, and also I like to be like, you know, I like how they do this. I want to do that, and I don't like how they do that. I'm going to remember to never do that, you know? And it's, it's kind of fun. I don't go with a critical spirit, but I like to compare too. And so anyway, uh, we, we went to a church here in Prince Albert a couple weeks ago, and we sat in the back row because we have a kid, and um, it was a really interesting experience. Like, there was, this, um, there was this First Nations lady that came in with a guy, um, you know, and they came in like several, like, quite a while after everything had started, and she, you know, she totally smelled like smoke and kind of the classic thing, like your non-church kind of person, you know. And she sat down, and we were pretty squishy in the back, so we were all squished together, you know, and Genevieve and I had Tirza, and uh, I just wanted to talk with her. Like, you know, like just the way normal human beings relate. Like, hey, what's your name? What's going on? That kind of thing. Talk about the baby or whatever. And, and uh, but I was like, I can't do that because there's something happening at the front. And uh, so I was like, and so she was like, hey, how's it going? I was like, good. How are you? You know, it's like, oh, I can't talk in church. It's going to make a racket and we're just visiting here, you know. So I was like, good. And we tried to have like a little conversation, like whispering, and she asked how old Tears it was, and it kind of fizzled. And then, and then the program ended, and everybody got up and walked out, and that was the end. And I was just like, I, I have nothing against like worship and preaching and all those things, they're good, you know? But I just felt like, I don't think that's what that lady really needed. And that wasn't really what I really needed. I just wanted to talk with her and be like, where are you at, you know? And encourage her and her, her friend and... I don't, like, they're, they're on a journey. They have a story, you know? And I just thought it was sad that these people came into a church and they sat there and then they walked out and, like, the only personal contact they had was a little whispered conversation with a guy that was visiting and didn't really want to, like, you know, be the bad guy in the back talking loud or whatever. And I can talk loud. Us, Genevieve. I like, don't have a volume switch either. So that was really challenging for me. But anyway, it was, it was just an example of how, like, I think often how we do community, we have this, like, artificial way of doing community. Sometimes it's just not naturally the way human beings relate. And I think sometimes that scrambles our DNA. That stops our growth process. And... Uh, I, I would like to see, I mean, I, you know, I, I think we're halfway there as a community. We kind of keep things open. We try and stay informal and kind of family-oriented, but it's still something that I think we have a ways to go. And I have some ideas that we're going to talk about in the next couple months about how we can change things so that, like, if that lady were ever to come into a gathering of ours, she would so connect and it would so meet her where she's at and that kind of thing, eh? So that's, that's just an example. Um, here are a couple of differences that I see from like the environment that was in the early Yeshua movement and the typical environment today, whether it be in a church or in a messianic synagogue. Um, in the first century, they generally did community in small groups that gathered in people's homes. And usually when you do that, it, you can't really have like this formal program or something. Everything is run from the front. You've, when you're like sitting in a living room, it's just weird if you try and do this religious program and have this format that you have to stick through and that you have to be done in 60 minutes or whatever. Like, if someone were to try to pull that off in their living room, that would just be really weird. 
But that's how we do it today, generally speaking. In the first century, people gathered in homes. It was definitely more of an informal thing. And it was more like, do you know what the number one analogy is that the apostles used for the ecclesia, for like the body of, of Christ? Just shout out some analogies you can think of. I just mentioned one, body. The body is an analogy. Huh? Family. Flock. Paul said your God's building is another one. Closing the community. Temple, that's a good one. Priesthood, yep. He said your God's field is another one. There are actually quite a few. But the number one the one that they used is family. Like Sharon said, you know, if you look over and over, they're always calling each other brother and sister and talking like they're a big family. And um, I think that's something we've kind of lost touch with. So that's a direction that we are going to be moving in more in the next couple of months, uh, God willing. Um, how could, how could we, uh, how could we um, picture that one? Number two, just like... Um, when you have things in a natural environment, like in kind of creating uh, uh, the right environment or whatever. I think of just kind of like a flow. Like, you know when things just kind of flow naturally? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe just, I'll just, what's that? Report? Okay, yeah. Yeah, but what could I draw? I want a concrete image of this. Hi, Precious. Hi. Hi. Um, I'll just draw a river. I'll just draw a river. Something that kind of just flows along naturally, you know? Okay. And we'll draw some little waves in the river. And a fishy. Yeah, you love fishy, don't you, Jesse? He's a happy fishy, too. See, he's smiling. Okay. Um, excuse me, my baby. Thank you. Actually, I want to read to you a, I want to read to you a page or two from a book that I've been working through. It's an excellent, excellent book. It's by an author named Neil Cole, and he's kind of like an advocate of like simple or organic church. Not even so much house church necessarily, but they're pretty closely related. And uh, this book is called Church 3.0. His thesis is like the early Yeshua movement was Church 1.0. When Constantine came in, he brought a new operating system that he calls Church 2.0. You know, big buildings, uh, professional clergy, uh, programs run from the front. He would call that Church 2.0. And um, Neil Cole would say basically the Protestant Reformation was still the same operating system that Constantine brought in. There, was, there were some changes to it. There were some upgrades, speaking in computer language. But it was the same system. You still have the big buildings. You still have the professional clergy. You still have programs run from the front. So he would say, basically, like, the movement that we're seeing today of people going to organic or simple church that is usually based in homes and is less formal, he would call that church 3.0. Like a totally new operating system. I don't know. The, the only thing I would differ with, with that is, like, I, I wouldn't see Constantine's thing as being an upgrade. I would see that being, like, going to a really deficient operating system. So maybe Church 3.0, you would call it that. Maybe if you're a Mac fan, you would call it going over to a Mac from a PC. Like you're finally getting, getting the real thing. Maybe that's um, what some people would identify that as. But I, just, I just want to read you a page or two from Neil Cole's book here, Church 3.0. He says, um, The impulse of a movement is inherent in the kingdom of God itself. It doesn't need to be manipulated or added to for a movement to happen, but simply released 
to be what it was made to be. We must get back our confidence in the kingdom itself rather than in our strategies and mechanisms. How many times did Jesus shake his head and comment with a sigh of disappointment, O ye of little strategy? It isn't more strategy but more faith in the king and his reign that we need. If this is true, then there's a simple idea we need to grasp if we want to turn things around. If the movement of Christ's kingdom is already present in each of us, it is not so much that we need to figure out how to make things happen, but instead, stop doing whatever's presenting it from happening. So he's saying, if his kingdom is already here, and if we have what we need, it's not so much about figuring out how are we going to make this happen, it's about figuring out what are we doing to stop it from happening. In other words, it isn't that we lack models, funding, strategy, leadership, or doctrine. We're investing too much in the things that are choking the movement and not simply releasing what Christ has already put in us. Could it be that we're holding back a real movement while all the time searching for one? I've come to believe this is true, and it is slowly killing us. It might sound strange when you read this, but I believe stopping the mission of expanding God's kingdom with multiplication movements is actually harder work than the mission itself. To get that, he says, it's actually harder work to stop what God is doing than to just go along with it. I also believe that the mission is much less expensive than all our efforts that end up preventing it from happening in the first place. We could save money and effort and see much more effective results if we shift to a new way of seeing the mission accomplished. Here's a great analogy. Imagine a man pushing a heavy car up a hill near the top. He wants to see it roll far and fast, so with all his might he pushes the car up the hill. As he fights against the weight and gravity, he struggles under the load, but he's determined to start this movement. In fact, all he has to do is step out of the way, and it will do all he wants and more. He is one, the one preventing what he wants from happening. Every square pound of pressure he insists in this exercise prevents him from accomplishing his goal. He doesn't need to do more work to make it happen. On the contrary, he needs less, much less. Ironically, the harder he works, the further from his goal he actually ends up. This is how I see the church preventing the kingdom from being the movement it is intended to be. We're often like the man pushing the car, not realizing that we're already near the top. God has already placed us at the top of the hill, poised to release a movement but we are investing all our might trying to make it happen as if we were at the bottom, when all we really have to do is step out of the way and let nature do what it is designed to do. I'll read one more paragraph here for you. I believe that a profound reason movements occur more easily in places and times of severe persecution, that would be like China or Russia, for example, is because the church is then prevented from doing things that hold back the kingdom such as hiring professionals, buying and maintaining facilities, creating programs, and writing curriculum. Without these distractions, rapid and spontaneous movements can emerge. In a persecuted church, stripped of any other resource or object of devotion and faith, Christ becomes more real. The gospel is all the people have left, and a movement results. All the movement inhibitors and impediments are removed. The church is free to move unchecked and with great power. Can we see this happen in the non-persecuted Western world as well? Of course we can. We can learn much by comparing the results of the communist revolution in Russia with those in China. So here's a history blurb for you. I love this kind of thing. Both were bloody revolutions that attempted militarily to snuff out all opposition, close down all churches, remove all missionaries, and incarcerate all of the church leaders. Prior to the revolution, the church in Russia was centered on cathedrals led by priests, and was distant from the everyday lives of the people. When Soviet communism seized the church and all her assets, 
the people had nothing left to turn to spiritually, and there was no movement. In China, however, leaders such as Watchman Nee had already made strides to empower ordinary Christians with the gospel and let indigenous churches form in place in homes and places of business. As a result, when the revolution occurred, the true church was still intact, even after her buildings and leaders were taken away. In fact, the Cultural Revolution in China sought to eliminate all religion from society in China, but instead mobilized the church. It grew from about 2 million Christians in 1949 to more than 60 million. It's estimated today there may be upward of 80 million Christians in China. Why did the church thrive in China and not in Russia? The foundation of empowering the common Christian in China set the stage for what happened there. The little flock movement led by Watchman Nee and others were already in place so that when the heat of persecution hit the church, she exploded with growth. There was no such preparation prior to the Soviets' rise to power in Russia. I mean, this is a great book. I highly recommend Neil Cole's book, Church 3.0. He has another book called Organic Church that I read. It's awesome. Totally recommend it. And anyway, those are a couple examples um, from history, Russia and China, about basically like God's movement is ready to rule, and sometimes it's more about just getting out of the way and letting it happen than trying to make stuff happen with our humanly devised strategies, uh, which generally are often control-oriented, more Western with their roots in Roman Catholicism, um, that kind of thing. So that's a, that's the second one. I'll just look at three more here, kind of sum them up. Um, Number three. Oh, actually, let's, let's draw a picture of that. Or, uh, actually, we'll just stick with the river picture. That's a good one for that whole thing, I think. Actually, let's draw a picture of the car rolling down the hill. That would be a good one to remember, hey? So here's the hill. And here is the car. Hi, Terza. Hi. You love it when I draw pictures, don't you? There we are. Okay, so here's the car. Don't ask me what make of car that is. And um, here's the guy. And so the guy's like, we want to get this car down the hill. We want to get this car moving as fast as possible. So I'm going to push it up to the top of the hill so I can get it over the hill and get it going. So here's the guy, and he's just pushing away. There. He's just sweating away, too. Oh, he's exhausted, eh? And see, what... What does he have to do if he just gets out of the way? The car is going to go because it's already positioned to do what it needs to do. That's, that's an example. Um, thirdly, like when we do stuff God's way, God blesses it. And when you look at the scriptures, there's a connection between the blessing of God and fruitfulness. What does it say in the first chapters of the Torah? God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful. So when we do stuff God's way, we will see reproduction. We will see Growth, not just like qualitative growth spiritually, but quantitative growth. New people coming to him. Um, I'm coming to realize that there are a lot of ways that we do church or synagogue today that I don't think are God's way, that are a fry, far cry from how things happened in the first century. And I already listed them, like having the, the cathedral-oriented meetings, uh, big buildings. I mean, there was a place for that, you know, the believers met in the temple and also house to house, but sometimes all we have is the big building kind of meetings, which can be considerably less personal. Um, some other things is like when you have professional clergy that are expected to be the over-functioning members of the body and do all the ministry, 
You know, that's, that's not scriptural either. Um, I, I've been pretty clear on that with, with our community. Like, I, I have certain giftings, and I will function in those giftings to serve our community, but I don't do everything, right? Like, if you are in the Catholic Church and you have a priest, or if you're in the Protestant Church and you have a pastor, they both basically play the same role. They're expected to marry people, bury the dead, um, visit the sick... Um, if you're a priest, you do a homily. If you're a pastor, you do a sermon. Um, lead meetings, oversee stuff. Same thing, right? And so I've been really clear in saying, like, I'm not either of those, right? I just, I do what Yeshua has made me passionate about. And it, when all of us function in what he's made us passionate about, when we function in our gifts, this thing's going to go. Yeah. Here's a, here's, a, here's a question that, for me, was very telling. Let's say, and you can, like, even, you know what, this is something, if you, you know, when I have a pastor friend or whatever, just ask, ask your pastor friend just to see what their thoughts are. Let's say God sent you a hundred new believers tomorrow. Or let's say God sent you a thousand new believers tomorrow. What's your plan? What's your community going to look like? Are you going to go the route of the mega church and just get a bigger building and get more in debt and, have, and, and bring more paid staff members on board and have more programs? Is that what you're going to do? Because if, that, if that's what you're going to do, maybe that isn't the way Yeshua's guys did it in the first century. Maybe that wouldn't entirely be doing it God's way. And maybe that's why God isn't sending you more people. That's why, maybe why He's not blessing you with growth. Because when you do things God's way, you will see His blessing. Oh. It's something to consider. Uh, along those lines, like often today we'll pray for revival in churches, Right? And sometimes, maybe God doesn't send revival because he doesn't want to revive the systems that we have. Could it be? Could it be that sometimes we don't do things God's way? Could it be that sometimes the way we do community is not scripture-based? And so God says, I don't, want, I don't want to revive that. I want you to turn around to repent. I want you to go through a reformation. I want you to go through a, revolution, a prophetic revolution. And then my revival will be there. Could it be? That's, this, this is my personal theory. I'll, I'll, I'll kind of build on that a little bit with you here. Um, in the book of Revelation, there's a very strong prophetic cry for, the peop, for Yeshua's people. Revelation chapters 18 and 19 describe this woman figure. And it says she's riding an animal, a beast type of figure. And uh, it gives some clues about who she is or who she's going to be. It says, okay, she's riding a beast, which is like a bunch of political heads, so she's mixed up in the political system, all right? It says she sits on seven hills. Um, Historically, both 2,000 years ago and today, do you know what city is the city that sits on seven hills? Rome. Rome. That's right. Uh, Look it up. Look it up, like, in history books or on the internet or whatever. It's all over the place. It's just, like, everybody knew that when John wrote Revelation. And you know what God says? God says that system is a whore, that system is unfaithful to him. And that system actually persecutes true believers. And when you study the history of Rome, first secular, shall we call it Rome, or paganized Rome, and then Christianized Rome that was still mixed up in the political, in political stuff, it, has a very, it had a very strong history of persecuting true believers. You know, people will say, well, Constantine became an emperor and, you know, we sainted him and everything was okay after that. But if you actually read your history books, Constantine killed a lot of the believers who refused to go along with his plan and become politicized. And I have great respect for the early reformers like Luther, Calvin, Zwingli. They did, I think they did a great job with what they had, but they were still part of that system to a certain degree. They killed Anabaptists. Anabaptists, by the thousands, were killed by the early reformers. 
So you have a man who has a wife, who has children who need him, and some of the early reformers would kill these men in the thousands simply because they said, I want to, as an adult, be immersed in water to say I believe in Yeshua. And they would say, you die. We have no room for that. That, that, that is the whore. That is the Roman system that kills true believers. And if you read the book of Revelation, chapters 18 and 19, what God says is, come out of her. Just walk away from her. He doesn't say, stay in her and try and reform her. He doesn't say, it's okay. He says, like the prophetic call to the body of Messiah for the last 2,000 years is, come out of the Roman system. And it says that Rome has daughters. Who are the daughters? Who, what are the systems that have emerged from the Roman Catholic Church? I, I, I offer that to you as a question. And you know me, I love the body of Christ. I am committed to Yeshua's people. I visit churches almost every Sunday. I'm really involved. I go to the ministerial. I have lunch with the bishop, this kind of thing, right? So I want you to know, like, I'm not a critical person. I'm a very loving person. But at the same time, you read Revelation chapters 18 and 19, and I think there's a call there. So I'm, I'm going to offer you my personal theory. My personal theory is, if, if we as believers are still part of that Roman system, even if we call it Protestant or Evangelical or Charismatic or whatever you want to call it, if we're still part of that church 2.0 operating system, maybe God isn't saying, pray for revival. Maybe God is saying, you need to get out of that thing and go back to my ways. You know, if, if we are part of a church where the church calendar has nothing to do with the Bible where Yeshua didn't command it, where the apostles didn't command it, and it's all based on Roman stuff that came into the church from the pagan world. Maybe God is saying, I don't want to revive that. Come out of her, my people. Maybe. You know, I, I offer that, that to you as a personal theory. My personal theory is, God will send revival when we respond to his prophetic call. That, that's my theory, right? And there's, there's room for discussion, and I, I'm not saying that to say let's become critical, judgmental people. Like, please, let's not. Let's love wholeheartedly. Let's, let's realize we are part of the body of Christ. You know, let's stay as involved as we can, but still recognize that might be one of the reasons that we don't see a lot of growth in the church today. Um, last two things. We totally see this. Um, we totally see this here. Let's, let's just draw a quick picture of that. Um, it's the concept of when we do things God way, God's way, it works, and when we don't, it doesn't go anywhere. And then um, the whole concept of coming out of her. Let's just draw, um, let's draw a big animal and a woman riding the animal. How are we going to do that? Um, I'm going to draw big pointy ears. And uh, oh, this is kind of pathetic, but that's okay. And big sharp teeth. And uh, all right, so she has a cup in her hand too. She's all decked out and dolled up and rich. There. So God says, you know, come out of her and uh, do stuff my way. Let's say this is His way. We'll just draw like a path, and Yeshua is on the path. There we are. He's saying, here, let's, let's go together. There we are. Okay. The last two things are things we totally see in this parsha. It's like Pharaoh had a strategy to keep the people of Israel from reproducing themselves, and it was all about control. He's like, we're going to organize these people, we're going to control them, we're going to get programs in place, and we're going to keep them busy, 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 running all day long, exhausted. Hello. 
Oh, it's kind of weird. Sometimes that happens in the religious world too. Did you guys notice we have like no programs in our community? We get together once a week. That's intentional. The intent there is like you have lots of free time so that you can just be the body, so that you can take initiative, so that you can build relationships with your neighbors, uh, with other people, that, that, um, that kind of thing. So you can see like control and busyness are two of the strategies of the enemy. And um, they totally sap the life of, out of a community, and they keep us from reproducing. Um, how do babies happen? Babies happen when two people spend quality time with each other, when they're intimate with each other. And Yeshua is our groom, and he's saying, like, come and spend a lot of time with me. Spend quality time with me. You know, just like God said to Israel, just come out of that Egyptian system. Come out to me in the wilderness, and let's just celebrate. Maybe that's what Yeshua is saying, you know, like, just come and celebrate with me in the wilderness. Let's keep it really simple. And you know what? I'm repro- like, we're reprodu- we are, we are uh, productive when that happens. Um, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but it probably bears repeating. Like, influence. Okay, looking at our mission, like to, um, let's say, share the good news of Yeshua with people, make disciples, that all begins with influence, hey? And influence happens in the context of trust-based friendships. You might have some influence, like if you're a televangelist or if you throw tracks, dump, do track dumps on the city from a helicopter or whatever. But quite frankly, most people don't come to faith like that. If you ask your average person how they came to faith, what will they say? Through the influence of this person or that person. Just a simple relationship. It's kind of scary. Like when we're, we get super busy with religious stuff and we're program-driven and all this, we don't have any time to build real friendships with our neighbors, with coworkers, with whoever, and we don't have any influence. It's scary. So that's why we have lots of free time in our community. Um, you know, I, I mentioned about Yeshua. Maybe sometimes he's like, just cut the program, stop working so hard with all your religious stuff, and just come and spend some time with me. Uh, there's one, one passage in the Gospel of Mark I'll share with you to finish that idea. Uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 35 it says, in the early morning, so like Saturday night, Yeshua was busy casting demons out of people, healing people right, left, and center. Huge crowd, right? They probably stayed up pretty late. Sunday morning, this is what it says. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Yeshua got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. <laughs> Shimon and his companion searched for him. They found him and said to him, everyone's looking for you. It's like they wanted to mob the guy, you know? And they wanted to suck him into all of that busyness. And he had to be really intentional about like, setting his schedule and saying, I'm going I'm to go by, off by myself, I'm going to have some solitary time, and I'm just going to be with my father. So you can totally see that in Yeshua's life. It wasn't all about programs and busyness and crowds and doing stuff for other people. There's a place to just get away to the wilderness and be with his father. And uh, it, may, it may be the same for us. Um, uh, what could we draw? What could we draw to picture that last thing, like control and busyness versus coming out to the wilderness and being with God and having time to build relationships? Let's say uh, freeway, traffic. freeway traffic. Okay. Okay. There are like tons of vehicles all driving along. And I guess, yeah, it's a great example of it because you're moving, but you're not really interacting with anyone because they're all shooting past you at equally high speeds, eh? Everyone's in a hurry to get somewhere, right? Versus... 
Okay, sitting in a park on a park bench. That's a great idea. Okay. Coming into Shalom. Okay. Cool. Yeah, maybe we'll draw... Oh, I'm running out of room. This is fun. Um, if any of you guys are artists, you can do this, by the way. Like, Just so you know, it's not like my drawing is so fantastic. Let's draw... This is the little town here in the Galil. And then here's, um, here's the Canaret. And um, here's, the, here's the sun. Um, I can't draw the sun because it's over here off the board. But anyway, um, and here's Yeshua walking off to just be with his father. Here's a rock, and he's sitting on the rock as the sun comes up. Let's draw him with his Talit on, too. There we go. <laughs> cool. So if our rabbi did that, it's probably a good idea. Shalom. I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.